Hello, exceptional people. You are now listening to Change Today, a new-ish podcast about how we can better today's society. I'm your creator and co-host, Miriam Antone, and sadly, Molly will not be joining us today, but I do have with me a very special guest. I have Anastasia Mina here. Hello. And today, we will be discussing her humanities capstone Mm. on biculturalism and multiculturalism. Yes. So, Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where do you go to school? I am from Ashland, Massachusetts originally, but I attend Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and I'm studying biomedical engineering and professional writing, uh, heading into my third year. Very exciting. And yeah, I each student at WPI is basically required to graduate with the equivalent of a minor in some sort of humanities or arts study. And so I did a independent research exhibition on something that was very close to my heart. And that is basically how identity development occurs differently for bicultural and multicultural individuals. So I kind of explored how different cultural influences can affect communication skills in addition to identity development. And I focus specifically on Egyptian Americans because I have access to them, uh, primary sources, because my family is from Egypt, um, similar to Mariam. And I ended up interviewing eight uh, young adults from the ages of 18 to 24. And I found that identity development occurs basically within these separate stages and it occurs at different rates uh, for different people depending on the context and social schemas and cultural schemas that they find themselves in at points in their life. Um, And I found ultimately that multicultural and bicultural adolescents, um, they do have a more confusing time coming into their own and and developing their own cultural identity. But in the end, they are very, very effective communicators and intercultural communicators because they seem to have this cognitive flexibility and um, cultural empathy that those who are monocultural do not have or possess. Um, which I thought was really fascinating. And this is backed up by other research in the cultural studies space. Yeah. So what would um, you say were some of like your key findings? So key findings for me, I'd say the most important thing that I ended up finding was the fact that bicultural and multicultural individuals seem to form like one of two types of, I guess, cultural identity is the only other way that I can think of to describe it. So the first one, it would be called a blended identity. Um, And what that means is that they tend to, or let me rephrase this. So I guess first I want to talk about like frame switching. Um, And for those who don't know, frame switching is basically the idea that someone who is exposed to different cultures, whether that's ethnic cultures, religious cultures, gender, any sort of cultural group, gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, religion, or like, 
you know, a sport that you play, if that has a certain culture, they are going to be exposed to different frames or lenses uh, or views of the world. And within each of those contexts, there are specific customs and mannerisms and expectations within those. So this is especially uh, apparent in for or for bicultural and multiculturals because we, you know, ethnic cultures and the differences between them are very obvious. They're very pronounced. So, for example, um, like you and I, Mariam, we grew up with American culture and Egyptian culture. So an example of frame switching would be depending on the social context that we find ourselves in that will subconsciously, it's automatic for us, change the way that we behave and, you know, what we will be willing to speak about and not speak about and how we'll address other people of different ages and um, all that kind of stuff. Basically how we're um, interacting in the world in that moment. So for someone who has more of a coexistive identity, they will be frame switching or basically subconsciously switching between those schemas, those lenses and behaviors, depending on the situation they're in, whether they're with other Middle Eastern and Egyptian people or whether they're, you know, maybe in Germany interacting with Germans or here in the States if they live here with other Americans. And then those, if you don't tend to have more of a coexistive cultural identity, you might have more of a blended identity where you still engage in frame switching. I think every bicultural and multicultural individual does frame switch to some extent, but you don't do it as much. And basically you have taken small pieces from all of the cultural influences that you've had in your life. And it just kind of makes up who you are in general, and you will act that way um, more often than not in any situation that you find yourself in, in any context, whether you're with Egyptians, other Middle Easterns, Americans, no matter who you're with. So in that case, you know, people might notice differences or how you're different from them more obviously than if you had a coexistive identity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think that I've uh, personally developed more of a blended identity. Um, of course, it's like a spectrum. No one is either one or the other. And as I said, um, we all engage in some sort of frame switching. And, you know, even if you are not a bicultural or multicultural person, you can definitely relate to this. You know, I guess gender is another obvious one where you might behave differently if you're in a room full of all men than a room of, you know, men and women or a room full of just women. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, code switching for right. minorities in the U.S. would probably be similar to your frame switching. But exactly. More focused on language rather than yeah. situation. Language than mannerism. So, like, language also has a really, really powerful effect on how you develop your identity as a multicultural person, um, especially in the States. And I definitely want to touch on that more, but... An example, I guess, for frame switching, just as a practical thing, um, you know, many of uh, us who are Egyptian, I, I don't think we actually realize how much that we do this uh, subconsciously. We don't realize how flexible we are. Um, you know, if you meet, anytime I'm meeting someone, and uh, an elder who is Middle Eastern, even if I've never met them before, I will, you know, shake their hand and and kiss them on each cheek. 
Um, and that's something that's very automatic to me. And, you know, you, you never do that when you're meeting your American friend's parents for the first time, for example, that would be very strange. Um, and that's because, you know, there's a different expectation with how you interact with your elders um, in Egyptian culture from American culture. But also there's a difference in um, how we view physical touch and personal space and sense of space in each culture. Those are very different things. So I'm sure that, you know, that's just one example, but any, I think that you and I can think of many other examples where we will, without even recognizing, just change the way that we're behaving or the way we're speaking um, and acting depending on who we're with or the situation that we're in. Whereas code switching, again, as you said, applies more to language and language is um, a very, very powerful thing in terms of identity development because when you are around people who speak the same language as you, they not only share your language, but they share your way of thinking to an extent because language um, greatly, greatly, greatly affects the way that we think, especially, you know, which language that you're speaking. For example, you know, if... You know, if you think about the masculine and feminine uh, words in like Spanish or in Arabic or in any, basically any language that's not English, mm-hmm. um, those play a big role in how we come to think about gender in certain roles. Um, or, you know, another great example um, of how language can work positively or negatively or perpetuate, you know, certain stereotypes is, um, you know, in Spanish, we know the phrase, like, many of us say, oh, no no problemo, when it's actually no problema, like, properly, but that kind of saying in the U.S. has kind of um, perpetuated the stereotype of, you know, the lazy Mexican person, Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that we don't really think about all the time, but absolutely the language that we use can affect how we think and the identities that we ascribe onto ourselves and onto others as well and it's also interesting when looking at language like how individuals who maybe grow up not speaking not having the same first language as their parents or their peers around them might feel more isolated from them and it creates, you know, language barriers can create these sort of uh, physical barriers between people. Um, You know, there are a lot of like, uh, in Chinese communities, Chinese American children might call um, new immigrants from China fresh off the boat. I know that that's definitely not a phrase that's new to either one of us. We've Mm -hmm. heard that for um, Egyptians who first come to this country. And, you know, there's become some sort of need to separate yourself as a distinct group from from if you were born here uh, uh, rather than being born abroad and coming to the states um, and just to continue with that example you hear the phrase um, like ABCs American born Chinese individuals a lot and you know this could manifest itself through hurtful names and create can create a lot of misunderstanding between younger and older generations um, and it you know, again, perpetuates a lot of different stereotypes about different groups and assumptions. 
But I ended up finding that specifically in the interviews that I did for the Egyptian Americans, it seemed that it was less about whether or not your first language was Arabic, but your exposure to Arabic um, that determined how emotionally attached you felt to the language and therefore the culture. Um, so like an example, like I, I'm just going to use myself as an example, but I, Arabic was my, both my parents' first language, but it was not my first language, um, because I was born near 9-11. There was a lot of hostility toward Arabic speakers in the country at the time. So my parents, you know, didn't really speak in Arabic to me a lot when I was growing up. Um, but so I'm not like, Uh, fluent or as my Arabic is not as good as many of my uh, Middle Eastern peers and that has created a barrier to some extent Um, but at the same time I still feel a very I do feel a strong emotional attachment to the language because you know I understand it even though I can't always speak it as well Um, I listen to Arabic music and I watch Arabic tv shows and you know my, my relatives speak to me in Arabic so all of these things, um, obviously I'm exposed to it a lot and therefore, you know, some of the connotations that certain Arabic words have, have an effect on how I grew up thinking about certain ideas and notions and political movements and all this stuff. So it's definitely goes beyond just speaking a language um, in terms of how it can affect you, how you view yourself and others and the world around you. So you said that everyone that you interviewed was Egyptian-American. Were they also Coptic? Yes. So everyone I interviewed was Coptic Orthodox Christian. And for those who don't know, many Egyptians who come to the States are fleeing um, religious persecution because they are Coptic Orthodox Christian. Um, It's the main form of Christianity in Egypt. um, And Orthodox Christianity is also very prevalent in the Middle East in general. Um, and this was actually really interesting. I had asked everyone what they felt was most central to their identity growing up, being Egyptian, being American, or being Coptic Orthodox, and almost all of them, without hesitation, had said that being Coptic Orthodox Christian was most central to their identity, and I think that this goes beyond just the faith, but specifically the role that faith and spirituality and religion play in um, Eastern cultures versus Western cultures or um, collectivistic cultures versus individualistic cultures. And this creates a barrier in a lot of ways, but especially when it comes to religion. In the West, it's definitely, I found that you know, religion is more tied to places and activities and actions. Like, I'm just using this as an example, but going to a CCD class or going to, like, a mass twice a year, things like that. Whereas for the Eastern world and for all of the Egyptian-American individuals that I interviewed, uh, religion and their faith was seen more as a way of life and influenced not just, you know, where they went on Sunday, but, you know, how they treated other people, their interactions with others, their moral values, and their beliefs in almost every area of their life. So obviously that's a huge difference in how we see faith 
and especially when you come from um, and when your parents come from a place where that's not something that you can practice freely it's going to look very different here in America between the two cultures between how Americans choose to practice their religion and how the eastern cultures do and that's definitely not to say that Americans or people from western society aren't you know, as religious or as faithful, that's not what I'm saying at all. It just um, manifests itself differently, depending on the culture that you come from and how you view the role that your faith and spirituality plays in your life. So out of all the, the research you've done in the, the interviews, this was mostly done by interviews, right? Your research? Yeah. Okay. What, what do you think was the most surprising thing that you learned? Um, that's a really good question. There were a lot. I think... I would say that actually it was very surprising to me that the exposure to a language was more important than whether or not it was your first language or if you're fluent for how mm. you attach to that language. Um, but I also, it was just incredible to, in addition to the research that I had done from like previously published works mm -hmm. on the subject, um, many people that I had interviewed, whether I was, you know, I had known them well or not as well. Um, were, you know, echoing back to me the same sentiments that I had grown up with, um, being very confused myself, coming mm -hmm. into my own. And we all kind of went through this stage of an unexamined identity where it wasn't really on our radar. And then all of a sudden we, you know, started going to school and we were made to feel different. And being a minority in the majority, there's a stage where you kind of reject your minority, um, the minority part of you in order to, you know, coexist peacefully with the majority group in Western society and then ultimately trying to push back the other extreme and realizing that that doesn't work either. Um, and finally coming to a place of, you know, fulfillment and completeness and feeling like maybe it's not a curse to have to juggle these two cultural views or schemas or ways of seeing the world, but actually using that for good and recognizing that growing up with two or three or four cultural contexts and lenses in your life actually gave you this incredible intercultural communication skill and you're able to empathize with people easier and you um, the more that you're exposed to in the different perspectives the easier that it is to um, understand people and engage with their emotions and their communication styles and their nonverbal tells, you know, um, and that's a really, really beautiful thing. And again, I, I, I think that a lot of the frustration that was discussed was the fact that we come from a very collectivistic culture where, you know, you sacrifice things for um, the greater good of the community and family is very, very important um, much more than it is emphasized here in the States, whereas independence and individuality is more prioritized here um, in an individualistic culture and, you know, building your own career. Um, and I think either of these extremes in and of themselves can be really harmful. Um, and I think we are privileged and, and gifted as bicultural and multicultural people to be able to have experienced both of those and kind of take the good from both of those and create a really, really special new culture of our own.
here in a place where we are free to do so. And I, I hope that that's something that we can recognize and pass on to our families. And yeah, I think that through this research, I've come to just realize that I think we need to start redefining the word culture or, or cultural identity mm-hmm. and how we view that. Because the reality is that we are in a very different world now than we were 500, 1,000 years ago. And culture is no longer defined solely by a border or, you know, a geographical location of people because we live in the world of globalization and information moving faster than it ever has and, you know, more biracial people and, you know, people are just, the fact of the matter is people are communicating more and coming together more um, and being exposed to more. So I think that it's important that we don't just limit ourselves to one definition of culture. And another thing that I came across while kind of diving into some of the scholarly research on this topic um, is that Context really is everything. So whether or not that you're bicultural or multicultural, we all belong to certain identities and groups, you know, mother, child, brother, sister, how we relate to people, um, gender, sexuality. There are so many things beyond just the ethnicity that we carry for the word culture to be used. And, you know, we all... We all subscribe to certain ideologies that may be considered outside of our, you know, cultural realm that was predestined for us at birth. And I think that it's important to recognize that every one of us is a majority and minority in different um, instances, in different situations that we find ourselves in. So I think that we can learn a lot about identity and how we respond to our environment and the world around us through bicultural and multicultural individuals because it's just a more obvious example of this. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it shouldn't be something that's so tightly associated with where you were born or uh, what country your parents are from anymore. Uh, It's not really like you know, an outfit or one personality, or it's not like you have one bucket and you have, you know, a certain amount of cultural influence that can be poured into that bucket and then you spill over. Like you're a person, you have experiences and desires and um, relationships with different people. And I think that cultural identity is no different. Um, It should just, you know, be a word to describe your Um, essence that you create for yourself um, based on the different influences that you've had in your life and you know the ideas from each cultural and a culture and each influence that you feel most attached to and and you feel most in tune with and you said you interviewed people ages 18 to 24 yes did you feel like at that age um, people were kind of more at one with their cultural identity rather than, like, their formative experiences? I think for the most part, yes. Okay. Um, I think definitely there's still more exploring to do. Like, I think, 
you know, anyone, any one of us, myself included, are still trying to figure out this game of um, feeling the sense of, you know, disarray or mm-hmm. displacement, feeling like you don't belong to one certain culture. Um, but I think for the most part, by this point in our lives, we've all had pretty similar experiences of feeling, you know, too, um, I know I did, feeling too American or whitewashed, I guess, for certain Egyptians and feeling too Egyptian or too un-American for certain Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, like, growing up, I definitely felt like I was sometimes nothing more than just the, you know, exotic or, like, diverse addition to my friend group, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, rather than being seen as just a person who has different experiences and a different upbringing than my peers. But I, I think that we've all faced that to some extent been made to feel like we don't belong completely in the American space or the Egyptian space depending on your experience of course that's the beauty of this like there is so many different um, experiences and there's so many different paths of growth and forming of cultural identity that happens it's so different for everybody depending on you know how assimilated your parents were and what's your first language and your exposure to the language and you know whether or not you actually want to be involved or associated with a certain cultural identity and like what age you came to the states if you immigrated here all of these things have such an impact on just who you are as a person that you know no one experience is going to be the same as another Um, even two people who have very similar lifestyles from the outside, like we're both born here, um, the parents were not, uh, come from a fairly assimilated family, even those two individuals will have very, very different experiences kind of coming into their own and finding themselves within the, the perspective of their culture and who they feel that they are at the end of the day. That was very well said. Thank you so much, Anna. Just to wrap up first of all I think you did an amazing job and I I was one of the people that you interviewed mm-hmm. and I had I had a great time doing it and I think it definitely like opened up a space in my mind to just also just like sit there and really like sit with myself and sit with the idea of um, identifying myself as a person that is multicultural mm-hmm. and um, it's funny because I know for a fact that two years ago I would have had different answers to certain questions than Mm. I would right now. And I'm sure that two years from now I'm going to have different answers to the same questions. Right. And uh, constantly growing in the idea of being, you know, more than one thing at the same time. Right. So thank you so much, first of all, for doing the work and and picking a topic that is so important to so many people who are our age and have lived this experience yes and second of all for coming on and sharing and then doing an amazing job while sharing of course um so i I really appreciate that and i know that you had to record this episode twice yeah (laughs) (laughs) because we lost the original copy so i really appreciate you putting in the effort to do that so i will try my hardest to link anna's 
full capstone reports Mm -hmm. when this episode comes out so if you guys are interested in in learning more you can feel free to take a look at that I think I I looked over it myself it was very impressive I I learned a lot you did a great job on it of course um and yeah is there anything that you wanted to say to wrap up yeah if you can please check out the the final product that Mariam will hopefully link because there's just so much to say here and mm-hmm. I think that even just skimming through this even if you're not bicultural or multicultural will give you a very different perspective um, on um, what it's like to grow up uh, feeling different in America and definitely would recommend reading it if you are bicultural or multicultural um, and yeah I guess my final thing would just be um don't if any of these experiences um sound familiar um try to not hold too much resentment and and I think I would just say give yourself more credit and recognize that you have this beautiful gift of um as I said in the beginning you have this cognitive flexibility and this innate ability to relate to other people who are very different than you because you grew up seeing the world from multiple perspectives Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people can't even couldn't even dream about that couldn't even under can't even comprehend what that's like Um, and don't feel like you have to put yourself in a box because you truly don't have to pick you know I am American I am Egyptian I am German I am Armenian whatever it is Um, you are who you choose to be you are the sum of many parts and you there's no checkbox that you have to fill in and you have to say I'm only gonna subscribe to this culture and this way of living much love to everyone (laughs) (laughs) said thank you so much for listening to today's podcast we hope you will join us next week when Molly is back with us again thank you guys so much for for taking the time to listen to this and this isn't a topic that we usually would cover on this podcast but something that is uh, very close to my heart mm-hmm. and I, I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to cover and talk about things um like this yeah. um and it, I think it was a nice break for listeners to get away from all things political and and mm-hmm. typically heartbreaking yeah. and to hear this but nonetheless We have to end off by saying, don't forget that there's always hope for change today.